0: Hello and welcome to the 50th episode of the Eastern Front. My name is Dalbo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow with the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends. Giselle Donnelly,
1: I'm also from AEI.
0: And? Julia Zsorza
1: with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University.
0: Our special guest today is Sven Jurgensen, uh, the permanent representative of Estonia to the United Nations. On our podcast, we talk about many challenges to European peace and security that have emerged along the line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Along with our 50th episode, we are also launching a monthly newsletter, a Twitter account, and a new website. You can send us questions and comments on the newsletter and on Twitter and stay up to date on new research from your hosts and our guests. You can find links to those in the show notes. And as always, if you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: And we brought the special 50th anniversary dog with us,
0: too. Yes, the podcast dogs are ready. Um, Let me turn to to you, Julia, uh, to, to frame... The the, the the conversation if you if you if you if you don't mind uh obviously uh, the UN was was founded with this with this sort of idealistic vision of preventing conflict in the world and yet uh you know in 2022 we are seeing a major land war unfolding in Europe and and the UN seems more sidelined than ever uh, how how has that happened
1: well, I'm I'm hoping that um, some of that we'll hear from Ambassador Jurgensen. Again, thank you for, for joining us today. Uh, ambassador Jurgensen is uh, is a diplomat um by career. Um he's been serving um the Estonian government since nineteen ninety one. He's been ambassador to the United States and several other very important countries, and you've been now ambassador with the United Nations for a while. Um, So you can give us the correct view. And I'm going to uh, I'm going to start by asking you about Russia, but I guess the way I would frame it personally is um, a long, long time ago, <laughs> or maybe not that long. I was an intern at the UN when um, Russia invaded Georgia. And I remember then the then Russian ambassador um, through some major tantrums um, within the Security Council and in the in the pre room to the Security Council And it was a time, at least for me, um, but it seemed to my colleagues who had been there for a long time, uh, it was a very um, uh, agitated time with a lot of um, fighting, a lot of disappointment from the Georgian side towards the Western half-hearted, if we can even call it that, response. And then here we are again in 2022, We went through the first Russian invasion in 2014 with, again, uh, warm or lukewarm um, responses. In 2022, the world looks very different. And we've had now, um, at least on a general level, a pretty staunch, comparatively to 2014 and 2008, a staunch Western response. But to me, the United Nations is showing right now that the West is not the entire world, that we're actually pretty isolated among 30, 40 countries, and um, and that half of the world, as we've seen through several UN resolutions at the beginning of this war, is is pretty split um, between parties um, trying to follow their realpolitik, their national interests. So Ambassador Jurgenson, turning to you, can you give us um, maybe a general overview of how you've read The response of the United Nations within this war, and could you tell us a little bit about how you read um, Russia, how it is positioning itself, how aggressive it is, what it is looking for um, within the remits of the United Nations?
3: Well, thank you very much. You touched upon three different issues that I'm trying to to then respond to. The first of all, the United Nations then the Western response, and then Russia itself. With the United Nations, uh, there have been many, many people who have said that the, the UN has failed looking at this crisis. And in some ways, you can say, yes, it's true, UN has failed. But if you look at the big picture of uh, and the comparison with its predecessor, League of Nations, that was created after the First World War, then actually the aim was exactly the same. And the mm-hmm. basically, it's not only to prevent conflicts, but try to prevent conflicts, trying to, to manage conflicts and so on. But the big aim was never again. And League of Nations failed already in 20 years, because in 1940, Soviet Union and uh, attacked Finland and Soviet Union and, and Germany attacked Poland. The Soviet Union was kicked out of League of Nations and running ahead a little bit of what I'm saying, unfortunately, the United Nations, uh, its successor, does not have any stipulation to kick out anybody. So this this measure cannot be used. Um, and so in 1946, uh, the, the League of Nations that theoretically existed uh, throughout the Second World War was dispersed and the United Nations was created. And the result of failure of uh, of League of Nations, my own country, together with our uh, two Baltic friends, disappeared from the map of the earth, you know, until 1991. So in this sense, I can say that United Nations has been more successful. It is still around 76 years uh, after its creation. Uh, But the Secretary General has also been very vocal, saying that the charter of United Nations has never before been so. Uh, so much threatened like it is right now so in a sense you know there was a feeling in february march that the united nations uh, existence is in threat just like it was uh, uh, with the, the second world war and and league of nations and i believe it's still true you know it's it's still not answered whether whether we will survive this or not but in this sense I think that the United Nations, as it was created with the, with the Security Council and five permanent members having veto right, I think it's quite obvious that these kinds of crises, when an aggression uh, is committed by one of the permanent members, there is not much that the United Nations can do because they can veto anything. And, and first, already in February, there was a resolution that was presented at the Security Council and it was vetoed by Russia. And then it went to the General Assembly and it got an unprecedented 141 votes condemning the resolution and demanding Russia to withdraw. Uh, Russia only had four friends. Uh, it was Belarus, Syria, North Korea and Eritrea. So not the best of families. So in this sense, I think United Nations should be used as one of the tools in the toolbox and and cannot be a responsibility for this kind of crisis when when a permanent member is committing the crime unfortunately the these in the general assembly resolutions are non-binding but even that is not so important because we've seen time and again actually because the United Nations does not have any army to enforce its decisions that even if if, if there would be a binding resolution I don't think that russia would follow it. But but one of the, the, the ways to use the United Nations, and that's what we are doing together with our, our friends and partners is that to use United Nations as as one of the, 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 the venues and one of the means to isolate Russia, and this has been quite successful so far. Now coming to the Western response, then I would say that what happened in two thousand and fourteen was a direct consequence of nothing happening after two thousand and eight. Uh, because there was no business as usual for a few months. And even though Russia didn't uh, comply with the the peace agreement and and didn't uh, liberate the occupied territories, then it was very quickly back to business as usual. And Russia is thinking probably that, and this might be slowly changing, but so far Russia has seen West as weak, you know, that we... We will, we will not do anything. Russia believes that Lenin was right when Lenin said that we are not afraid of capitalists because they are going to sell the rope to us that we are going to hang them with. And unfortunately, <laughs> throughout history, I've seen that there was a lot of proof that they were probably right. But now the West Union is very strong. It's, it, it's not guaranteed that it's going to last, but it's, it takes an effort. It takes an effort to see the, the the capitalists keeping their rope, and 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 they would not, that, so that there would not be any more Schroeders and 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 Western companies. You know, I, I I saw recently that about two weeks ago there was one Russian drone that was shot down, and the thermal camera was produced by Thales in February this year. So it was. This this is something that we have to keep together, and the sanctions that have been posed, you know, there is also a lot of skepticism that nothing has happened and so on. But at the same time, sanctions are not quick tools. But but if you look at the Soviet Union, and I had this experience, you know, it did implode at at some some uh, point. And I think we should just keep at it, and there should be no no not no not only business as usual, but no business at all until there is there is full accountability also. First of all, the war has to stop, and then there has to be accountability because there have been such massive war crimes and crimes against humanity committed. And now to Russia quickly, just, uh, you know, the, the, the prime minister uh, of Finland said uh, the, when the war had just started and he had talked to Putin and he said that masks have fallen. Uh, in a way, it's true, but at the same time, Let's be honest, we could see behind the mask all the time, actually, for a very long time. If you look at the start of the, the second Chechen War, then uh, everything reminds me also to the the, 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 the the development of the of the Nazi regime in Germany, you know, when you had the, the fire at the, the Reichstag. Right. And in nineteen ninety-nine, when Putin was still Prime Minister and and big and on, on his way to become president, there were those famous explosions, apartment building explosions all over Russia that yeah. were given as a, a, a way to start the second war, quite clearly organized by KGB or FSB at the time, but I still call them KGB, all those those successors. Then then you see you look at look at the invasion in 2008, then 2014, the the, uh, the 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 events in Crimea, Donbass, so on. I think it was always visible, but, but but there are things just like people, also countries. There are things that they don't want to see, and we turn our our eyes away from from something until it's too late. And now this is this is the situation,
2: Mr. Ambassador. I wonder if I could ask one more sort of psychoanalytic uh, question uh, about Europe. As a post-Cold War idea, um, many people, I mean, it, it's very difficult to judge. So many, as we all do, uh, applaud the the response uh, across Western Europe uh, to the invasion, praise some more than others, to be sure. Um, but one casualty of the war, it increasingly seems to me, um, And one that may be difficult to save um, uh, over the course of time is this idea of Europe as a almost eternally, a Kantian, eternally peaceful uh, political organization, Um, uh, ever more united, so on and so forth. Um, What I offer that as a proposition and what would you say Europe, collectively, um, will look like in a few years? Uh, uh, are, are there going to be big changes in, uh, in, in Europe, Europe's self-perception? Or will it go back to sort of what it was pre-February?
3: I don't think that for a long time there is a way back to pre-February. And when I'm talking about Europe, actually, we should bear in mind not only Europe, but I don't know what the term would be, the free world or transatlantic world. Or I think we are all in it together. And I've been sometimes also asked, uh, no less, but at the beginning of, of the aggression, whether we feel that Estonia is next. You know? And I think it's, it's even a wrong question because we cannot be next. We are all in it already i think all of us not just us but also all european countries uh, united states and so on if you listen to putin's speech on the 21st of february on monday before he started the the aggression he he gave actually quite a good picture of what is in his mind and when people are saying that he wants to recreate the soviet union then this is also not true he wants to recreate the russian empire because he was blaming the soviet union and lenin for creating those crazy stupid republics you know that that uh, Kazakhstan and, and and Ukraine and and all those those other Moldova and so on because Russian empire was a unitarian one state you know it was Russia and 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 there were minorities but it was one one country and he he also wants first of all for Russia he wants to re- recreate the the Russian empire but it also wants to be these other superpower you know and and it was also interesting to see actually how putin is trying to to do that is is it it's obvious that i was two years at the security council the last last two years and it was interesting to see actually how the russian chinese tandem was working together almost 100% i, I re, if i remember correctly there was only one occasion and that was not an important one where they voted differently but they were even though the the basis for their interest was different but they were always working together and the result was the same and i think it's because they what putin is trying to do is is to organize a counterbalance to to the the world that he has been painting as an enemy from from the very beginning and but this this notion of the west being an enemy and and the need for an enemy for russia it has been there forever actually it's been there for thousands of years uh, so therefore, I would say that there is no way back, but how the world would look like, uh, it, it depends very much on our own actions. And there are many positive signs, you know, that the, uh, like we were talking about the unity of, of the West. There is one part of unity that I personally consider lacking, and, and because when we are talking about unity, we are talking about transatlantic unity between our countries. But I think in this kind of a situation that we are facing and this serious crisis at the moment, I think we also need more internal unity. If you look at the polarization in the United States, we have a government crisis at the moment in Estonia. You know, look at what Hungary is doing in Europe and the kind of developments over there. I think I think there has to be a wake-up call also for our internal societies to to to, to stay together, because if you look at the the, the Cold War. The Cold War was kind of. There, there, there were two positive things in the Cold War that I'm always saying, and 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 people are shocked when I say, say that there was a really good thing about Cold War. That oh my God, Cold War is a bad thing, and I said it was cold. <laughs> so this is this is a positive thing, and the other positive thing was actually that the the the, the table was very clear, you know. One, one side on the other side who was sitting there I don't think that that uh, Helmut Schmidt would have dared to go become the the CEO of Uralmash, for example it, it it was it was it was crazy and I think we are we are we are going to enter the same kind of, of situation so in whatever way when and how the, the the crisis in in Ukraine will end first of all, It will not end if some parts of Ukrainian territory will remain occupied, because then it will just be a ceasefire. Just like we saw what happened eight years ago, Russia will not stop. So for for this whole whole thing to, so to say, to end, Russia has to lose. Then there has to be, uh, like I said, uh, no business before there is full accountability, and i'm saying this because you know it's not politically very correct to say that we need a regime change but it's it basically means the same this thing this is one
2: of the few places on earth where you can say that without <laughs> fear of contradiction
3: and we might be but, cheering. <laughs> but saying that saying that there has to be accountability and there is no business before that it basically means the same thing because regime change is not something that we are going to do just like the Soviet Union, actually. We, we create the conditions, but it's, it's up to the Russians themselves to do that. And then there has to be, just like there was denazification in Germany after the Second World War, uh, there has to be a deputinization. And before that, it's quite obvious that we are entering, entering a new phase or, or a new Cold War with, a, with, a, uh, you know, with, with, with an understanding that it might last quite a long time so we have to be ready also to have the the mindset of, of the Cold War that, that there is this iron curtain as as Churchill has put it, and it's sad sometimes to see actually that the when when again it's 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 become much better. But when I look at the beginning of the conflict and when we started talking about sanctions, there is so much talk about what kind of sanctions are going to hurt us as well, and it, it it's certain. The sanctions are going to hurt, and they are already hurting us. If you look at the energy prices back home in Estonia, we had just the, the highest inflation in the whole of Eurozone, you know. And and this is all as a as a product of the war. There, there will be also famine in the world, you know. In you at the UN, and we are we are using the, the the UNese language now all over the world, talking about food security. You know, come on, guys. For people on the street, they know what it means. It's it's famine and famine will grow because of the blockade of the of the ports and so on but then i will come to the looking at the western eco- economy and our own societies i would come back to what churchill said in the spring of 1940 you know when uh, he said and i think we are in the similar situation and he promised his nation blood toil sweat and tears and i think we are we are in the same situation and at the moment i can say the Ukrainians are the ones who are giving the blood and tears for all of us. And at the least that we should give is actually toil and sweat. And we should be ready for that. And it's not going to be easy. In the long run, I think the same thing will happen. That happened to the first Cold War. Uh, that, that Russia, that is very pompous at the moment, because even though they are producing and, and exporting less oil and gas, But the prices are so high they are making even more money and and when when we look at how much money we have given to ukraine and that we are very proud of that then europe is giving a billion dollars a day to to russia that that makes it possible to to wage its war so I, i i predict that it will be a different world i i predict there will be an iron curtain uh it's going to last for quite some time but how long it will last it depends actually on the Russians themselves whether there will be a chance for them to to, to wake up because I'm every now and then I'm I, I can't survive it too long because I want to keep my sanity but I'm switching to to Russian television sometimes for a few minutes and it's absolutely unbelievable what's going on over there well want if I
0: may just push you a little bit on <clears throat> on this on this Europe question that that Giselle opened, because it strikes me that uh, particularly in this current situation, there is an unfortunate twin asymmetry, double asymmetry existing between different parts of the EU. Uh, first of all, you have you know the economic resources on average concentrated to the west, and you also have. Um, the Russian threat concentrated disproportionately in the east. So, you know, countries that are, you know, the least well positioned to be able to defend themselves against the Russian threat are also the ones that are most immediately affected by it. And, and I, and and you see it in, you know, like if, even in your own country, where like Estonia has given what like one third of its defense budget to 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 the defense of of, of Ukraine. I mean, that, that's clearly a situation that's unsustainable and you know there's all this lofty talk about the european strategic autonomy sovereignty i wonder if you have any thoughts on how i mean the eu can be used as a platform to actually address this asymmetry in a way that does not try to usher in some european utopias but 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 gives a sort of practical response to this to this problem uh, which i think would require in turn the realization that that countries that are really on the eastern flank of the eu and NATO are threatened not only in their own capacity and are not only defending themselves but are also defending the entire European continent and the entire and, 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 and the whole of the west. I'm not quite sure that's sort of sinking in, in 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 all Western European capitals in particular
3: i would I would say that it's a process that takes time. Just like the German, what they call the Zeitenwende, when when they they and the the turn in Germany, at least at the beginning in rhetoric, the the, the acts themselves take some time, but I think it's revolutionary. And I was ambassador in France uh, before coming to to New York, and and you have to also understand as a small country, I, I've been trying to explain also to my people back home that that in order to understand and to to be successful uh, in your relationships, you have to be able to put yourself into other people's shoes, you know, and and to see if you look at the history of French-Russian relations for hundreds of years, it's very different from Estonian experience. So therefore, in order to to work with them, you have to understand their position also, where they are coming from. And it was quite obvious that for a very long time, uh, countries like France... And let's say Germany, after the the enlargement of NATO and European Union, when they got buffer zone with the Baltic states and, and Poland, they did not consider Russia as a military threat, and quite rightly so, you know. And they they considered Russia as an an economic opportunity, and and but this is I would I would argue <clears throat> that you can see that this is changing, because if you look at also first of all the. When we talk about the the war and the aggression in Ukraine, it was preceded by Russian, I I call it ultimatum to NATO, you know, that that you have to withdraw from everywhere where you are, uh, moved in since 1997. And I I remember when I was ambassador in Washington with one early 2000s and with one task, and it was NATO enlargement, how hard it was for me to to try, try to change the language also, because uh, the Americans were, and also the others. Everybody was speaking about NATO expansion, and they said that we should talk about NATO enlargement, even though the, the difference is small, but the expansion is an aggressive move. You know, NATO is expanding. But I, I remember how damn hard it was to get to NATO, to get the yes from them. So it's countries who want to join. If you look at now Finland and Sweden, who are, who are neutral forever, you know, then 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 this is the change. Then, if you look at the change, also from you remember when when Donald Trump was was at one of his first NATO summits and he he kind of said that we should leave NATO altogether. Then, if you look at the the the, the cooperation and the strong alliance actually that is is formed right now, I think it's it's quite different. Then, if you look at also the the defense expenditures. Uh, that started to grow everywhere not only in NATO countries but you know when because of the, the lack of the feeling of threat you know look, look at what happened with the defense expenditures in Germany then in, in, in uh, Sweden, even Finland you know it, it's it's all all coming back and so therefore I don't see that at the moment there is a very strict division. Of understanding of threat, you know, because I think it it has sunk now in, like I said earlier, that we are all in it, you know. It's and and when Estonia is sending one third of its its defense uh, budget to, to to Ukraine, and per capita we are probably the largest uh, suppliers of, of of aid to Ukraine, then in a way it's also selfish because, uh, like I said, the Ukrainians are now giving the the, the blood and tears for all of us and. And what they are fighting for and i think slowly this understanding is coming that that the fight that is happening on the soil of ukraine is actually a fight for freedom for the whole continent and uh, unfortunately it's it's some of it is too slow you know there are all heroic announcements of new weapon systems being sent to ukraine uh but i just read this morning that that when we are talking about high mars that is going to be sent i think they are Four units that are going to be sent. So, so everything is too slow and, and too little, because at the moment the weapons are going into Ukraine in a, with a speed that that allows us to keep the status quo. But but in the end, like I said earlier, in order for this all to end, Ukraine has to be liberated. Otherwise, it will happen again and again and again. But this this unity is there much more than than we've seen for a very long time. Of course, there are splits. Like I. I don't shy away as, uh, calling the name Hungary, but it's but it's out in the open. We can all all see what's happening. First, it was oil. Now they are blocking the the sanctions to Patriarch Kirill. That is, you know, it's, it's all
0: a of a friend place. of the show. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh,
1: it's funny to see uh, to see um, a proud um, uh, Catholic country being now very. Um, very in, in solidarity with Kirill, and I will not call him adjectives right now for the sake of our listeners. But I want to go back. Well, but I,
3: I agree with the adjectives that you don't say.
1: Yeah, I know. <laughs> thank, <laughs> thank you, Ambassador. I want to go back to the blockade that you mentioned and i want to share with you a scenario or i guess a fear of mine we we're now talking about europe in the future um and what the scenarios of solidarity or division can be as we're looking into the next years but what i'm afraid of is the situation that we're now in and that could unfold this summer um, we have a blockade on odessa that um, risks creating worldwide famine. The Russians, I think you agree, you said it in different contexts, have no reason to give up on that this summer or the next, because their aim is to destroy Ukraine and destroy Ukraine's economy in the end, even if that creates millions of victims worldwide. So The scenario would be the following. In parallel, they're already asking, and I know you're much more well-versed in the details of that at the UN. In parallel, the Russians are asking for a lifting of some sanctions um, uh, to be able to lift temporarily the blockade on on Odessa and uh, permit exports of grain um, from Ukraine. And so the West will be the summer in the uh, the situation in which Russia will continue to point fingers and say, it's because of you, because of your sanctions, that the world is dying of hunger. And then in parallel, they've secured a land bridge which kind of overlaps with Dugin's Novorossiya and what what Putin is going for, so this they could create this summer a unilateral ceasefire, and hence enable or um, push the West to slow down delivery of weapons, increase pressure on Ukraine, who will continue to fight, but they're already suffering, just like you were saying with. They're saying there's it's always six weeks delay in in when the weapons should be there and when they're actually being sent, and then we have basically a tragedy on our hands that will um that will prolong probably through the next year. Do you see the possibility going back to the initial question of the West being successfully pressured in the coming months by Russia to lift some of the sanctions?
3: No, I don't believe that. There are false narratives that are being presented at the United Nations all the time, and uh, you you can see it. uh, some of them are successful. And these are issues where we cannot kill false narratives, especially in today's world, but we can manage them and we have to work on it all the time. And one of them is that the famine that we are talking about is because of the sanctions that is complete and utter nonsense. Because it's quite clear that it's because of the, the war and the blockade of, of Ukrainian ports. Uh, there were like 20 ports in Ukraine uh, before the war, and now none of them are functioning. You know, Sea of Azov is completely closed, uh, Mariupol, Berdyansk, all those, those ports are non functional. Uh, there's a blockade of Odessa. So that's one false narrative. The, the, the other one is that. That the, the white world or the Western world is only concerned about this crisis because it's racism, uh, but at, at the same time it takes maybe a longer lecture on that. But it's a, it's a very different crisis, you know. Having been in the Security Council, none of the crises has threatened the existence of the United Nations, and 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 so this is this is a, a, a different thing. Uh, but it's the blockade. It's a we had a breakfast quite recently with Secretary Rosemary Di Carlo. And she was also saying, you know, that they, we might face uh, towards later this year uh, food security issues in the world. Well, first, first of all, again, food security. Let's talk about famine. That is what it what it means. And I said, this is not that it might come. I think now it's a certainty that it will come. It's it's quite clear already, because first of all, there is lack of there is not enough grain and 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 sunflower oil and corn. Uh, but then also the price of food. I, I think this is this is another thing that is, uh, e- even in places where you can get it, but it's just so expensive that, that people cannot buy it anymore. And this is something that Russia is, I, I believe, willingly and purposefully actually using as a weapon. There's this old Bolshevik saying that the worse, the better. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And and I think they are clearly doing that. And and there are all kinds of cynical, awful things that are used as weapons right now, like rape and famine in the world, uh, destroying the whole rules-based structure of the world, and so on. It's it's all uh, done in purpose. This is something that will come, but I think we should not give in to this this uh, stupid, false narrative that that sanctions have have anything to do with that. It's just a narrative <clears throat> that we have to fight against, and in some countries, of course, it's also also something that they are using who are who are against sanctions as such, and they are using the situation just in their own game. And I remember <clears throat> in the council the first year we were together with the ambassador of South Africa, and and he was vehemently fighting against sanctions all the time. That altogether, sanctions are bad, and. At one point I said that, my dear friend, the only reason that you are sitting at this table over here is the most successful sanctions in the history of the world. You know, <clears throat> So sanctions do work, but they take time. But in this narrative, you know, what is, what is? like I said, it will come, I'm quite sure, and it's happening already, you know, it's already starting. And Russia is pillaging, Russia is, is, is stealing uh, the goods also, it's stealing the grain Shipping it to the places where it is it's accepted, and I think the only place they have been able to ship it right now is Syria, because they have their own port over there in Latakia. <clears throat> but it will come. <clears throat> the difficult part is that I know that United Nations is right now also in talks and on very many different levels and and different uh, places on on trying to find a way to to lift the blockade. But may, what makes it a little bit more complicated is that there, there are both Russian and Ukrainian mines close to the port of, of Odessa. And and if if Ukrainians would demine their port, then it's quite obvious that Russians have not yet forgotten the possibility of, of having an, an invasion of Odessa from the sea. So if if the, the, the uh, anti-ship missiles will arrive in t- uh, on time and in, in, in quantities that would be enough uh, to Ukraine, then that might perhaps replace the, 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 the mines. But otherwise, we have to bear in mind also the, the military interests of a, a country that is being uh, invaded.
2: Before we go, um, I'd like to draw out Um, Another issue that I think is especially sort of UN relevant, but is also sort of the child of famine, and that is migration. Um, It's very easy to see that if the scenario that you just sort of walked us through were to play out, um, that there could easily be yet another wave of large migration out of the countries most affected, and the destination in many cases uh, is likely to be uh, the European continent. Um, And it seems that this is also a phenomenon that uh, Moscow has weaponized to great effect over the last several decades. Uh, What sort of discussion is there in the UN or amongst your colleagues uh, about the prospect of uh, yet another uh, large wave of migration that, that uh, is uh, politically challenging for not only European countries but other countries to, to take in, especially piled on top of, uh, of you know, millions of Ukrainians who've had to flee.
3: That is a very grave danger, and there is a lot of thought about it, and that is exactly, I think, what Russia has in mind. It's it's not that they just want to starve other countries, but that's, that's one of the weapons they have in mind. If there would be famine, then... Then the the refugees right, uh, running away and the migrants running away from the famine are not going to Russia. They are going to Europe, like like it happened before. You remember two years ago, you know, you know the, when when Lukashenko started using this as a weapon, organizing migrants to the border of uh, Poland and and uh, Lithuania. Uh, it is a grave danger and what is really also a big danger is that right now europeans are taking in massively ukrainian refugees but it's easier uh, psychologically because everybody understands where we started off that ukrainians are fighting our war and there is a lot of compassion Uh, estonian population has grown by three percent we have taken 3% of our population as Ukrainian refugees. And at the moment, we are the main recipient of refugees because right now the Ukrainian refugees are not fleeing through Poland to Europe. But a lot of Ukrainians who were deported to Russia tried to find their way back, either to Europe or to, to, to Ukraine itself. And most of them are coming over Estonian border and some of them are staying in Estonia. We have been successful in... In in, in in keeping everything calm and trying to 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 respond to this and it's 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 been working quite well, <clears throat> but if we would start having migrants from Africa and, and Middle East, that would be a different issue. Of course, the the crisis that we had uh, two years ago has taught us a lot, so I, I think we are we are better equipped, we are better prepared, uh, but but the main thing still is. To keep it from happening you know and and that's why that uh, by deblocking the ports and and getting getting uh food uh moving and and getting the energy prices down i read this morning saudi arabia has promised that they they, they would replace the 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 oil that russia is now sending to europe so they're all good signs you know and and we have to keep working on it but if if it will happen it would be it would be biblical <laughs> i'm i am i am afraid that the, the danger is clearly there, but but it's still avoid uh, avoidable.
0: Ambassador, I'm afraid we'll have to wrap up on this rather somber note. Uh, but that's usually the case on the Eastern Front. We very rarely uh, do these episodes uh, in a sort of you know sh- shiny and, and optimistic <laughs> atmosphere. So so thank you so much for 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 taking the time to to talk to us.
2: Read the fiftieth uh, episode uh, outro. We're all look on the edge of our seats, waiting for this one. You, right. this, and- Mr. Ambassador, you, this is you're a, uh, unwittingly fallen into a celebration of. Uh, we've only been at it since February, so we've been running very hard, and we're patting ourselves on the back routinely. It's, for, it's way
0: too early to take out the Verve yeah. <laughs> well, yeah,
2: I don't know. It's just not chilled yet. That's so. The thank you,
1: Ambassador, for joining us on our fiftieth episode. Thank you. From Dalibor Rohash and Giselle Donnelly and Julia Zorja.
0: Thank you for listening to the 50th episode of the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. And many thanks to our special guest today, Ambassador Sven Jurgensen. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, ai.org, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod. Pod written as one word, and please do sign up for our monthly newsletter, which will be coming out soon. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.